0: plant from North Wake. If you haven't seen us or heard about us uh, every now and again, uh, we we make the Farfung families report and uh, we have our picture up there with another family, the Martins, who we planted with in 2013 in Rollsville. And at that time, Rollsville was pretty teeny tiny, but we had uh, an idea that the Lord was doing something incredible there. And uh, we've we've been there ever since and uh, the Lord has just been incredible. And so I want to send uh, just thank you to you guys, Um, just your partnership. And, And some of you may say, like, what does that look like for me? That looks like about once a month, uh, having the privilege to sit down with Larry at lunch and share uh, encouragement, uh, maybe show him some of my wounds, let him mend them for me. Um, Also, it it includes reaching out to the elders here from time to time to say, uh, would you give us some wisdom, some young pastors, some wisdom on how to navigate some of these very difficult circumstances? Uh, It means a phone call literally that's answered every time that I call, and so I'm really really grateful for that partnership. I'm grateful for your prayers. I'm grateful uh, that you guys get to baptize some tonight. We were in small group when we went here uh, before 2013. We were in small group with the Hemphills. I've held both of their children, Elizabeth. I've held her. She's probably looking at me saying, like, I have no idea who this guy is. It's creepy, right? It's such a great thing to, to look and see Students who are giving their lives to Jesus. And so I would encourage you, uh, no matter what you're doing this afternoon, it may not be as eternally uh, focused as being there for when they come out of the water to see your face cheering and celebrating with them this new life that they are dedicating to Christ. It's one of the greatest things that we do as a church, to celebrate new life together. So I would encourage you, I won't be there. You can. You're their church. You speak with them, celebrate with them, pray for them. Uh, the longer that I've come to, uh, to uh, grow in a person as a pastor, I, I realize that our culture doesn't like this, but we are in many ways in this world uh, binary, meaning two types of people. And the problem comes when, when we look at those ty- two types of people and we assign value to those two types of people and look at the differences and says one is more valuable than another. Uh, but some of these things we see from Scripture in Genesis 1. We see man and woman. He created them. It's either or. Uh, and that's the most basic foundation. Uh, but as I've grown up, I've learned that there are many more things uh, that we find ourselves divided over. You're either this or either that. You're either someone who loves sci-fi or you're someone who thinks people who love sci-fi are weird, right? Uh, you're either Duke or Carolina. You're either someone who thinks state should be mentioned with Duke and Carolina or someone who doesn't. Right? <laughs> if you're like my wife and I, you relax when the kitchen is clean or you relax until the kitchen is clean. Right? Uh, you have uh, the over the top toilet paper or underneath toilet paper, the mustache or the mullet. And maybe if I haven't found yours yet, this one will resonate. You either fill up your car because you can or you fill up with gas because you're not sure you can make it another quarter of a mile until the next gas station. My wife loves to tempt fate oftentimes I'll get in her car and we'll go to somewhere and she'll say, oh, by the way, we need gas. Oh, by the way. She knew when she was driving home from work, she was praying all the way there, right? That she would actually be able to pull into our driveway and hand this problem off to me in this way, right? And so most often she is very organized, very planned, but in this one area of our lives, it drives me crazy. I want to get into a car and I want to be able to to go wherever I want to go with a full tank of gas. And normally I'm like that, but since gas prices have uh, crept up and I've ran out of kidneys to sell, uh, I have like, started to you know, digress in my abilities. I was coming home uh, a couple of weeks ago, and uh, I, I knew I was on empty. The light dinged at me, and I passed the gas station as I took this call, and I thought to myself, it's okay. I don't have to be anywhere early in the morning. I can stop and get gas." And that evening, uh, after we ate dinner, we went out to to feed our animals. We live on a farm, and we noticed one of our horses was very distressed. And so we called the vet, explained the symptoms, and he says, that's not good. Bring her in right away. And there was this feeling, even in that moment, where I knew I was going to have to stop and get gas. In this emergency situation, my children are frantic in this moment. We load the horse up, we bring her in, we're pulling out of the driveway, and I have to break the news to everyone. Hey, listen, I've got to stop to fill up. I can't make it where I want to go, where we need to go, because I'm on empty. And I'm not so sure that this is very different than the way that many believers live their Christian walk possibly filling up, as it were, from Sunday to Sunday where someone comes and and sings over you or for you or explains the word of God to you. And it's as if we we limp along from Sunday to Sunday or, or Bible study to Bible study, just barely enough to get by as long as a disaster or life doesn't creep in. And I think we'll find today in the passage that Paul's prayer for the church is not that we would live a life of scattered feedings, but that we would live a life filled up with knowledge and spiritual wisdom and understanding so that we're able to walk in the way that Christ has asked us to go. This is what Paul prays for us. This is what Paul prays for the church at Colossae. And I'm sure that As you listened last week, you you understand uh, that that Paul had never been there. He's praying for the church. And this is what he says in chapter 1, verse 9. He says, For this reason also, since the day that we heard of it, we've not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you would be filled up with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. You know and understand that Paul's never been there. He was writing to a church that he didn't plant. He never attended. He didn't share any meals with these people. There was no laughter. There was no stories. There was no shared mourning. This is Paul's experience of hearing what God has done in them and praying for them, their sincere faith. And he says, for this reason, this reason is that the gospel had come to them, had changed them, had shaped their love for one another, and now was bearing fruit in the way that they shared it with others. And he says, for this reason, for this reason that the gospel is going forward, for this reason that the Spirit is working in you, for this reason I'm praying for you. Most often, I think we reserve prayer for catastrophes. We reserve prayer for the moments that we need band-aids and fixes. And Paul's theology here is, I know and understand that as the word of God goes out, as the gospel and the kingdom is advancing, Satan is going to come and attack, probably like he had never has before. And so since I've heard of your advancement in the kingdom, I've not stopped to pray for you. I'm praying that you would be filled, that you wouldn't just coast along, that you wouldn't rely on past spiritual victories for your fuel for tomorrow. And he says, for this reason, I'm praying for you. And he says this, as soon as we heard what God was doing in you and through you, how the spirit was working among you for the glory of God, we haven't been able to stop praying for you. I believe that his, his prayer is no doubt sincere for the believers at Colossae but also it's persistent. Paul has this persistent prayer and this is something that he would encourage believers in in many of his letters. Colossians 4 later on in the same letter Paul says to the church be persistent in prayer. Keep alert as you pray giving thanks to God. And Philippians Chapter four, he says, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, in everything, always, persistence. With thanksgiving, pers- uh, present your request to God. Ephesians chapter six, he says this, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication, and to that end, keep alert with all perseverance. Be persistent in prayer. What? For, make, for the supplication of all the saints. Here's what I believe that's evident through this passage and throughout scriptures that God invites you and his church into a sincere and persistent prayer for the kingdom. God invites you and his church into sincere and persistent prayer for the kingdom. Let me ask you this most often, there's a persistence that marks your life. Most likely, each one of us in this room has a persistence that marks and shapes your life. What is yours? What would be said about you that you are persistent in? Some of those things aren't evil in themselves, of course, but God has invited us into this kingdom-shaping, kingdom-moving work called prayer. That has eternal weights and significance to them. Are you persistent in prayer for your family? When God wakes you in the quiet hours of the evening, you toss and you turn, and, and your eyes go to the clock, and you think, okay, if I fall asleep just right now, then I can have three more hours. Does your mind turn towards persistent prayer? God, would you shape and change the way that my children love and see you? Are you persistent in prayer for your church and for its shepherds? Or would your life be more characteristic of, of persistence in research while their perspective may be wrong at the moment? Are you persistent in prayer for the nations? As we're introduced to missionaries, to families, far-flung families all over the world through intermissions, as we're introduced to them, do they become just a flyer that we toss away at the end of the day? Or do we somehow, in some miraculous way, join our hearts to the mission of God that they're doing in the nations and say, God, would you use them? Would you protect them? Would you guide them? Would you shape their words, their ministry in every sense? Would you do something through them? Let me tell you, this is going to go one of two ways for us, right? The scripture speaks that, that and when we get to heaven, that every tribe, every tongue, every nation is going to be there. Most likely, if you look like me, we are going to be the minority in heaven and I cannot wait. And so you can come to heaven and one day you can look around like you're at a family reunion that someone else invited you to. Who are these people and how did they get here? Or you can say, can, some, can somebody point me to Zimbabwe. I've been praying for them. I I don't know their names. I don't know their faces, but all I did when I was here on earth, I just prayed for them. My heart bled for them. I was praying that God would bring his name, his mission, his work to these people group. I just got to find somebody here from there because I know that God has united us together with him. This is happening. Just last week, the IMB released released an incredible story. You can find the entire thing on their website. Uh, But here's the Twitter version, and I have a picture uh, for you to see. Uh, The version says this, no written language, no resources, no concept of Bible stories, but meet Sarah, the first known believer among the Mbara people. They're one of thousands of people groups around the world where Jesus is not known or named. And she is the first that we know of. This is happening, and we get to be a part of this. God has invited us into this mission where we are persistent and sincere in our prayer that says, God, would you reach the nations that I don't even know exist? It puts us in a mindset completely outside of ourselves. I love what Spurgeon says about prayer. He says this, we feel that God is very great, and we tremble in the presence of his majesty, and we feel, we know that we are very little and that we are also so vile And it does seem such an incredible thing that such guilty nothing should have the power to move the arm that moves the world. God has invited us into this life of prayer. What are you persistent in? If you've been here long, probably just a few weeks, you've heard Larry say something that, that rings in my mind that we quote him often at exchange. A day without prayer is a boast against God. A day without prayer is a boast against God. We've added to it exchange. We've made it better because that's what we do. (laughs) I'm kidding. We have added to it. Uh, Here's what we say. We believe that prayer, your prayer life, reveals what you truly believe about God. We believe that your prayer life reveals what you truly believe about God. Do you need him? Does he hear you? Is he powerful enough to come to your aid? See, we have the opportunity to sincerely and persistently pray for others. And here's what Paul prays for them. This is the prayer that Paul prays for them. He says this: for this reason, also, since the day we heard it, we've not ceased to pray for you and to ask this, that you would be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Paul's prayer is that the saints would be filled with the working of the Spirit in their lives. That they would have knowledge of his will, spiritual wisdom, understanding. He's praying that they would have an intimate working relationship with God, so much so that it would change everything about them, their decisions in life, how they view the world, how they walk in it. He's talking to them about a true transformative kind of spiritual life. It's not a checkbox, not a cultural obligation. This kind of relationship goes far beyond those things. It's the kind of thing that changes the world that we live in. The will of God, of course, is a really big question. I used to, to work with high school students for about 16 years, and most often around, you know, junior, senior year, panic attacks would come because they were so desperate to thread the needle with surgical precision of God's will for their lives. Where should I go to school? Who should I date? What dress should I wear to prom? Big, like life-changing things, right? I think we, we often become consumed with these questions. It's interesting, though, that the Old Testament and New Testament writers really didn't have this kind of view in the will of God. Most often when scripture talks about the will of God, it's primarily viewed in two ways. One would be the moral will of God. What his boundaries are that he has set for us in place. God's will for my life is that I would marry another believer. The second way that we see in in scripture is the way in which God advances the kingdom. The way that he is moving and acting and shaping things within the world. Do you remember uh, the way that Jesus prayed and taught us to pray in the garden three times under distress? Jesus prayed, Not my will, Lord, but yours. He's surrendering what, what, what his will is to the Father's. And then, of course, he teaches us to pray and he says, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. He's asking that, that we would attach ourselves to the will of God in this way, that we would know and understand, that we would be full of knowledge, spiritual wisdom, and understanding so that we can see the working and the moving and the shaping of God's will and his way in the world and our lives, and we attach ourselves to it. So God invites you to attach your life to his mission. God invites you to attach your life to his mission. You know, Paul's prayer is not that we would be full of correct answers to life's greatest crossroads and choices amongst ourselves. It's that we would be so full of knowledge of God's will, what he's doing, how he's working, that we're able to look at the world and see it, understand it, and attach ourselves to it. Oh, 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 I see that this is the way that God is moving. I want to be a part of it. I'm going to attach my life, my purpose, my motives, my days, everything, the way that I pray to what God is doing, how he's shaping things within this world. And watch what it does. It shapes not just what we know, not what we see, but how we live. In verse 10, as he continues, he says this, So that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. So his prayer is that we would be full of knowledge, spiritual wisdom, understanding, that we would be full of these things so that we would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. There's this link between learning and living. And Paul Frequently uses this metaphor of walking to express the Christian life, faith. Romans 6, chapter 4, he says it this way Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in the newness of life. Galatians 5 says this But I say, walk. By the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. Choose the Spirit, not the flesh. Ephesians 4 says, Therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, I implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you have been called. I think that he loves this analogy because walking is both deliberate and unconscious for us, isn't it? For most of us, or many of us. We see it learned in the little ones hopefully that you might be caring for in the next hour. And we see the concentration and the effort that it takes for these little ones to gain their first step. Every drop of strength, every little bit of balance that's not yet there, they grab onto a finger just to hold on so that they can manage one step and it's not long after that before they're running after toys and people in a direction that they set their mind to and they just go and i think oftentimes this looks like the christian walk at first when we're not filled with spiritual wisdom and understanding it's a it's a maze of of scripture and figuring out who the lord is and what he wants for our lives and his moral will for us and we look and we study and we think okay okay i think i have it and this we push towards this way and soon As we grow in spiritual wisdom, understanding, fullness of knowledge, we're able to point ourselves in the direction that God is moving, and we move in this way. And Scripture says Paul is asking us to push our lives in a way, walk in such a way that's worthy of the Lord. Worth is such an interesting thing, isn't it? And this word actually has the connotation of a counterbalance or a scale Paul is saying that in some strange way we live out this Christian life, the way in which we live out this Christian life, it can be worthy of the Lord. Of course, worth is interesting. It changes from time to time. If you've watched your 401k over the past couple of years, you've seen that happen. We look at things and assign value or worth. And we look at others and think who would ever pay for that. One of those for me is the T 206 Honus Wagner baseball card. It's a good looking guy, right? Because of its rarity, history, and iconic Hall of Famer depicts, the T206 Honus Wagner has been coveted, pursued, owned by several industry executives, Hollywood moguls, athletes, and entertainers. In 1991, the card sold to legendary Hall of Fame hockey player Wayne Gretzky for $451,000. It turned out to be a pretty good investment. Just a few years later, he sold it to Walmart for $500,000. The card was used later to promote a contest and a prize. And the next year in Florida, a postal worker won that card, it auctioned off at $640,000. In 2000, just a couple of decades ago, Robert Edwards auctioned off the card to Brian Siegel for a record-setting $1.2 7 million dollars 1.27 million dollars Obviously his wife did not know about this <laughs> And so a few months later he sold the card for 2.3 million dollars Again it was sold for 2.8 but last year in August 2021 the T206 Honus Wagner card sold for $6.6 million. It shattered the record for the highest-selling sports card of all time. And what's crazy is that all it takes to sell a card for this is one person who has the means and who has the desire to look at it and say, I want it. I want that one. But what's interesting is the card doesn't change currency. It's not as if many of us in this room probably, uh, I would say none of us in this room most likely, would would pay 6.7, the next asking price for this card. If you have that, Exchange Church could use (laughs) that resource. The card doesn't change currency. It doesn't change the value of a dollar. It doesn't shape the value of a dollar. It's actually the opposite in that currency determines the value of the card. What someone paid for it is what determines the value of the card. And Paul says that we can walk in such a way that demonstrates the value that Christ has placed on our lives. Paul says that we can walk in such a way that shows the world the value that the Son of God placed on our lives. See, God invites you to put the cross on display through your rescued life. We should walk in such a way that shows the value that Christ has placed on us. He says, walk in a way worthy of the Lord. Walk in a way that shows the world what he gave for you. Whose best deeds on our best days were counted as filthy rags who were aliens and strangers and enemies of God, now chosen, adopted, children and heirs. And so we walk in a way that shows the world this incredible sacrifice, this incredible payment that God himself would come and purchase us with his own son. And when we live in this way, we're able to please him in everything that we do, Scripture says. Notice the next verse. He says this, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. It seems difficult, doesn't it? To please him in all respects. Maybe overwhelming. But I wonder if it's as simple as this when we're full of knowledge of him, of spiritual wisdom and understanding, when we're walking in a way that's representative of the value that he's placed on us, and that we, when we know the heart of God, we're able to filter everything that we do, every decision that we make through one question, just one, would this please God? Would this please God? Would it please God for me to steward my money this way this week? Would this please God to enter out with my spouse this week in this way. Would it please God to pursue this relationship? Would it please God to enter into this business agreement? Would it please God? Would it please God to use my talents in this way? Paul says that when we're being filled with, with knowledge of with spiritual wisdom, understanding that there's, this is something that we're able to do, that we're able to please God this way. Why? Because even when we don't get the answer right 100% of the time, when God's children live their lives with this question in mind, it always pleases When God's children live their lives with this question in mind, would this please God? Even when we don't get the answer right 100% of the time, this question pleases God. It pleases God that our motivations, our heart, everything that we do, we're going to stand before him one day. Many times over the past two years, I don't don't know if you've been like this, but many times over the past two years, I didn't know what to do. I didn't know how to lead a church. I didn't know how to sort through my own motivations and my struggles and my thoughts and my desires and what was best for the community and all the things. And so oftentimes I would literally pray and I would say, God, you know my heart. You know what I'm trying to do. And if I'm going to stand before you one day and give an account, at least you'll know that my motivation to to this is that it would please you. God, and if I get it wrong, you know that the thing that I got right was my heart is honestly trying to seek you and to please you. But I think sometimes we just don't even ask the question. God, with with what I'm trying to do here, would this please you? Scripture says that knowledge of God is directly related to our ability to discern and what pleases him. The author of Hebrews says it this way. He says, concerning him, we have much to say. And it's hard to explain since you become dull of hearing. For though by this time you should be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles and oracles of God. And you've come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness. For he's an infant. But solid food is for the mature. Who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. So many times we get so wrapped up in, is this the right thing? Is this what I should do? Scripture says that when we train our senses, when we experience the full knowledge, spiritual wisdom and understanding of God, when we commit ourselves to walking in a way that's worthy of the Lord, when we ask the question, would this please God? We are training our senses to discern, Scripture says, good and evil, which we can clearly see. We can look and we can say, we can answer that question. Does this please God? Does this action, this motivation, does this heart, does this hope, does this desire, does this treasure, does all the things that we have, does this please God? And scripture says those that commit ourselves to him, we can know the answer. We can easily discern what's good and evil. So Paul continues to pray and comes to the source of his prayer for the church And says this in verse eleven: strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience. I think what Paul's saying is that I hope you're strengthened with the power of Christ for the road ahead. I pray that you wouldn't try to live out this this spiritual walk, this journey, out of your own strength. Because it's not good enough. My my prayer for you is that you would be filled with spiritual wisdom and knowledge and understanding. That you would walk in a way that's worthy of the Lord. That you please him. That you bear fruit for eternity with him. And do it out of the strength that Christ gives you because you'll need it. There are moments, I think, what Paul is saying to them. That you'll be tempted to give up. It's not easy. There's persecution and momentary sufferings. And then the enemy is after you. He says the enemy will, will soon find out of your success in the kingdom, that the kingdom is moving in and through you, and the enemy will come after you. Later on, he says that the enemy uh, will come for you with vengeance. You'll be tempted to operate with your will being first. You'll be tempted to find your worth in what others say about you rather than the value that Christ has already put on you. You'll be tempted to lose hope when you can't see everything that the Father is doing. So he prays for the strength that only comes from Christ. And he points them to the source of this strength when they are weak and he says this, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you as to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and he has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption the forgiveness of sins. Next week, Larry is going to preach a text that many of your Bibles have subtitled The Incomparable Christ. And Paul goes on to display the fullness of Christ's glory and his splendor in this text. And he sets it up this week in our passage where we stop today to say, find all of your strength in the one who has rescued you from darkness and transferred you out of nothing that you've done on your own to the kingdom of light. He says, find your source of strength in the one who has forgiven all of your sins. The one who has spoken life over you. When your mission seems impossible, when God seems far, when life circumstances are bleak and heavy and overwhelming, Paul says find strength And what Christ has done for you. Let it fill you, motivate you, push you, comfort you, heal you. I think too often, though we're thankful, we don't stop to really contemplate what Christ has done. That he has transferred us out of darkness. That we have no hope. That we can't even assist him in. It's not that Christ helped us be transferred. He did the transferring when we had no hope. One of the greatest stories that I've heard that even comes close to illustrating this transferring happened just a few years back in June and July of 2018 uh, when a junior soccer team from the northern province of Thailand found themselves trapped in the Tham Lung non cave system. Twelve members of the team, if you remember this story, aged 11 to 16 and their 25-year-old coach entered the cave on June 13th. Shortly after their soccer practice session, and soon after they were in the cave system exploring, heavy rainfall partially flooded the cave system, blocking their way out and trapping them deep within. If you can imagine, the cave system has no light, and is filled now with water. Efforts to locate the group were hampered by the rising flood levels, strong currents, and no contact was made for nearly two weeks. There was a cave rescue team effort expanded into massive operations with scuba divers who would spend hours in the tunnels, in the cave systems, trying to navigate these turns with rope behind them so they could find their way out. As you can imagine, the murky, dirty water in the cave system lent itself to complete blindness underwater. In two weeks on july second, um, after the boys had been lost, British divers John Vallen and Richard Stanton found the group alive, elevated on a rock, clinging to hope. They hadn't eaten in two weeks. The cave system was much too complex for them to navigate, and most of them could not swim. By the best divers, former Navy SEALs, it took five hours from the entrance of the tunnel to get to their location. Coming back out, swimming against the current, it took six hours. If you remember the story, it's an incredible story of rescue. They swam doctors into the location to medicate the boys. To put them unconscious, and these rescue divers swam them six hours out of the tube, out of the cave, out of darkness, into life. They played no part in their rescue. They couldn't even move their hands. They didn't kick their feet. They assisted nothing whatsoever in the swimming. They were unconscious, medically Subdued. And they were transferred out of death and darkness into life. Friends, this is our story. In a dark cave, unable to swim. In darkness, with no righteousness of our own. Christ intervened and transferred us from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And what's incredible of this is Christ did not just rescue us to dump us off at the the entranceway. He invites us into this life that we can know him, to know his world, uh, to, to see what he's doing. He invites us into this life and mission with him where our actions go beyond themselves. We're able to please him. He invites us into this relationship and working with him in his mission for the world. Maybe today, as we wrap up, as the worship team comes, maybe today you came in on empty. Maybe your life is operated on, your spiritual life is operating on, on, on Sunday after Sunday, hoping that the worship team picks a song that ministers to you really, really well, that speaks to your circumstance really well. Maybe the text is right where you need it to be. And it's as if you're going from from station to station just barely enough to get to the next one. Friends, Christ did not rescue you to live a life endangered by spiritual emptiness. Christ rescued you. To fill you with spiritual knowledge and understanding, to bring you into his kingdom and advance it into the world. There's hope today. If you don't know him, this is the great God that we serve. Would you pray with me? Jesus, you're too good to us, you're too kind. To rescue us and then, Christ, to give us your spirit where we see your heart, your mind, what you love, what you hate. We attach ourselves to your life and we find purpose in it. God, you're too good to us that on our best days, formerly our best actions were counted as filthy rags and now you call us heirs, children of God. God, you're too kind to us to bring us from enemies, not to just a neutral person, but to friends. Knowing that this domain of darkness had a hold of our lives, and knowing what it would take to rescue us from it. Jesus, I pray that we would latch on to this life. that we would even be persistent in prayer for those around us to find this kind of life with you. And Jesus, it's in your great name.